Shania Smith is a first-generation college graduate who received a full scholarship to Drexel University, a visiting scholar at Harvard Business School, and an entrepreneur who is extremely passionate about the education system. Since graduation, Shania has worked for a number of Silicon Valley tech companies, including LinkedIn and currently Carta. In this week's episode, we discuss our college experiences, the education system, and the pros and cons of traditional approach and alternative education outlets. Shania also shares about her personal entrepreneurship journey with Enviewer, a company she founded to help high school students in their college decision-making process by increasing access to relevant information. While the company is no longer operational, the mission is still so important and provides valuable perspective around the current education system. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Uh, Shania, you come with so much experience and so much passion in your community and we're so excited to have you on the show thank you i'm excited to be here <laughs> so to kickstart this week's episode i would like to ask you obviously from the introduction aside you are immersed in the tech community now you work for a fintech company so tech is something obviously very shine through your background overall and on your instagram you wrote down tech vc and startups as your introduction. So I'm assuming the identity of tech, of venture capital and startups are something you very that's very near and dear to your heart. So can mm-hmm. you tell us what that means to you? Like what do these words mean to you and maybe your mission statement overall? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I put that into my bio because I felt like in terms of really how a lot of people know me and, and the what most excites me, you know, would be those sort of three areas. So I've been working in tech for, you know, four or five years now. Um, You know, the same thing goes with startups. So I've really been interested in startups for the last, you know, four four or so years now. I have worked at a lot of really cool organizations. And then, you know, I think, like you mentioned, launched and worked on my own for a bit. Um, And then the VC side, that's actually sort of like the directions I'm interested in going. Um, I think there is a lot of power in being able to, you know, focus capital on entrepreneurs and and really help them scale and build really innovative companies. And the VC sort of industry is known to to have been really not diverse on both sides. So in terms of who gets VC capital and also who is writing checks. So um, that's another um, sort of area and, and direction that I'm interested in heading sort of moving forward. Definitely. Did the interest in tech and finance specifically for entrepreneurs kind of emerge while you were going in your own entrepreneurship journey? I know we talked briefly about your company in Vure, but I was wondering if you could kind of talk us through the mission of that, where that came to be and how mm-hmm. that's impacted your view of tech as mm-hmm. we speak now. Yeah. To answer your first question, so in, in regards to, in terms of tech, I think the reason why that industry really caught my interest and I'm still working in it now is because of 
you know, how much sort of influence it holds in a lot of our lives, you know, regardless of what your job is, like everyone is being impacted by technology in some way. And so that's sort of the first thing. Um, the second thing I think about, you know, technology specifically is that it does have a way of increasing access, you know, whether that be through information, through opportunities, you know, networking, like Clubhouse has exploded because of the fact that you can now tap into networks, you know, enter rooms and conversations that previously you had to be stamped, for lack of a better word, to, to really even interact with those people or hear in terms of what they're talking about. So I think that's the really exciting thing about technology for me is how it can increase access and opportunity for so many people. And then to answer your second question in regards to Envure, so Envure really started, you know, through a series of conversations with my co-founder. So she was a good friend of mine. And essentially prior to starting Envure, I was working at another uh, student-based startup at Drexel in our uh, incubator center at Bayada, it's called. And so I was already sort of working in the space, like working at a startup, working at a student-based startup, learning about, you know, the ins and outs of like building a company and, you know, the process of raising money and things like that. So I was working in that space and my friend kind of knew I had this like interest and involvement already. So I was actually on co-op at the time working at SAP when she approached me with the original idea, which turned into Envure. So she essentially reached out and was like, hey, I know you're doing these different things. I have, you know, this idea. Can I run it by you? Can I call you later on? She was working at NASA. I was working at SAP. So I was like, yeah, sure, call me. And she, you know, told me about it. And the sort of original idea that she pitched me changed, but the mission was the same. And, and the mission really always was focused on how can we essentially create opportunity and improve the college application and, and sort of candidacy-like process. So, we knew that, you know, I was I was a first generation college student. So a lot of people and we were talking about this before we, we started, but my process of navigating, like applying to college was very like figure it out as I go. I didn't really know what I was should be looking for or like I didn't have a dream school or anything like that. I was just like, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to study business. And like that was it. I ended up getting a full scholarship, like you mentioned, but even the way I got my scholarship, it wasn't like I had spent, you know, months and months searching for, you know, those different types of resources. It kind of fell on my lap. Like, I think I got an email about it. I opened it. I read it. And they said, oh, we think you're, you're eligible to apply for this opportunity. And that's how it, it came across for me. And, you know, you guys are from Philly, so you probably know Drexel's really expensive. So um, I don't even think I understood how great of an opportunity it was when I had received it. So, you know, saying all that to say when it came down to Envira, we're like a lot of the college process often feels random or often feels like kids, students don't feel like they really know what they're doing or there's and, and this was like, you know, across different types of kids from all different types of communities. We were talking to kids who came from less who came from more and everybody wasn't really enthused about it like everyone was kind of just like hoping that they get in some people felt more prepared than others so we were like okay how can we you know create something with technology to increase access and opportunity to information and things like that to overall improve that process so um that's what we essentially plan to do i think you are able to i think a hallmark 
of well one of many hallmarks that describe what a good entrepreneur looks like i think the common theme is he or she is able to identify a certain problem and to create that demand to meet that supply right or to create the supply for that demand of the problem that exists uh, i was having this conversation last night uh, with a, with a friend of mine and my girlfriend and we were chatting about how broken the education system is even mm-hmm. on a college level uh, american college system is well-known throughout the world. Like the most prestigious universities are located in the U.S. in terms of the global landscape. But if you look at the longevity of a person's career, especially our millennials, and we're, I'm 27, uh, you're a little bit younger, but that applies to both of our generations that we're going to experience a minimum like four to six career changes throughout our lives. Mm-hmm. Whereas our grandparents, they, had, they were able to pick a college if they worked hard, they could graduate from that college with a bachelor's degree. With that bachelor's degree, they can now buy a house, buy two cars, support their kids for their... All you needed is one job, one college degree, and they were fine. But our generation is this college system hasn't changed to adapt to the evolution of where society is heading as a whole. So, and I'm sure you know this, your college degree become obsolete after your first job. Because your second and your third job requires the skills and the experience and the reference from your first job. Mm-hmm. However, the price of the college admission has only skyrocketed the past 30 years, 20 years. But the quality of the educations or the applicability of college has diminished so much. Because mm-hmm. once again, on, by the time you're on your third job, when you're 26, 27, nobody really cares where you went to college. Right. But then grad schools and masters and PhDs and are becoming more and more required and prevalent throughout the societies because everyone just have college degrees now. Uh, But I think there is a lot of conversation must be held to talk about how broken and how unpragmatic the college has become for most people. And I share that because uh, when I used to teach as a middle school uh, teacher at Harambe Charter School in inner city Philadelphia, I remember KIPP charter school system. I'm sure you've heard growing up in Camden district. A KIPP's a very well-known charter schools, and they have a very high placement rate for students who go into college. But what they don't tell people is they also have like 80% dropout rate. Uh, out of 95% students that they brag and promote to the people, to their uh, fundraisers, to their donors, that, oh, look, 95% of our KIPP student graduates are college applicants or they went to college which is a high stats but most of those kids don't make it because they're not prepared for a college uh, environment they're not prepared for a holistic learning experience like college coming from a kip school or coming from a community schools like a kip so i think there has to be a shift of conversation from not just can a kid go to college but how can we best prepare the child to succeed in college because getting in is the easy part the hard part is how to graduate from that Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That was definitely a conversation that me and my co-founder had often in regards to like, um, you know, one one sort of metric we were looking at was like transfer rates and things like that. And, you know, even the likelihood that students would transfer was also very alarming because, again, it's kind of like, well, clearly students are not being given the right information up front to really make an educated decision. And so, again, we were really trying to focus on like, what, are, what do we think? And based on the conversations we've had with other students, based on our own experience, based on research, like what do we think are the most important sort of like factors to making an educated decision and how can we like 
try and help students get it right more often. Like, we're not saying, we weren't really saying, like, oh, we want you to, get, to pick the right school in, like, 100% of the time, and, and that's what we want to deliver. But it was more like, okay, if we can improve the likelihood that they go to the right school, you know, they're, they're looking at all different types of things. Because there's a lot of reasons why students transfer or drop out and don't finish. And so, you know, we really were focused on, like, if we can make sure that they're thinking about not just getting in, but, you know, cost distance, location, the programs that the school actually offers to study, like majors, opportunities, you know, for internships and ongoing learning while they're there. Like, these are a lot of things that students don't think about. And I definitely wasn't thinking about, I was just kind of like, I'll go. I knew that I was going to go. I knew that I was going to graduate, but I didn't think, you know, much further ahead than that. I didn't have like an ambition to do what I'm doing now in terms of working in tech or FinTech or anything like that. Um, I was just focused on getting there. And I, I always say I kind of consider myself like lucky because I got there and I finished and I graduated from the school that I enjoyed and had a good experience at. And I happened to go there for free. But most of the time that does not happen. And to your point, it's like not a mistake that is cheap to make. It's becoming only increasingly more expensive. So, yeah, lots, lots of work to do there. On that note of how much the price is kind of skyrocketing, one thing that I've started exploring is other degrees so like certifications or online boot camps or just kind of really embracing this online self-education kind of idea to secondary education i don't think it was as much of a option when we were going to school or when we were entering the college but especially being in tech how do you kind of think about that the decision of college versus maybe pursuing an online degree or a certification in coding for example is that something that you guys explored within Vure or even have seen with people that you work with currently? Kind of just the standard academia route as well as the learning skills more so than a degree necessarily. Working in tech, I've definitely seen a rise in companies trying to you know, find other ways to assess candidates for like a good fit outside of just like where they got their undergraduate degree and what their major was. And I think it's because of the fact like there's a lot of data also showing that, you know, the jobs that are going to be created in the next 10 or 20 years, like from a skill based standpoint, we're not prepared to fill. And so I think that's why there are so many like boot camps that have come out and other sort of like learning based like programs where you can learn to code or you can get um, mentored by people who work in product management and all these other industries, which have been traditionally very hard to break into, especially if you're a minority. I think that's part of the reason why there is like this rise happening because they're they're figuring out like college is not and can't be the only pathway to you know get people to to do these jobs that are going to be required and needed. Um, they, like there has to be other things and other ways to to figure it out. So. Yeah, throughout that process, I'm sure you've done your market research, you've seen and done your vetting process about if it's feasible, the likelihood, what are throughout that research process, whether it's R&D or not, what are some of the common barriers that you have identified that's mm-hmm. most mostly applicable to your demographics, to your consumer bases, which are, I'm assuming, mostly students, right? So to make sure I'm understanding, like, what were the metrics that we were mostly looking at? Yeah, and what are the common barriers that you've identified? Yeah, the biggest barriers, I think that, well, one, it was like we had a lot of conversations with students, again, from a lot of different backgrounds to kind of see, like, 
what was sort of like being provided, like what were students using to actively like pick the right school, right? Like they were, you know, using different platforms like College Board and the Common App and stuff like that. And then most people just relied on whatever their high school provided them. But obviously like your high school, depending on what district you're in and zip code is gonna have a really big influence in terms of how much support you receive. A lot of people often did like, you know, college prep, sort of like SAT prep classes, but you also had to pay for those. So again, it's like, if you didn't have the finances, again, it wasn't necessarily something you could take part of. So for us, we were really trying to look at, okay, like what are people using now? Cause we knew that there was a gap. Like we knew that, you know, there was an issue with, and, and we had, I personally had friends who had transferred, you know, two, three, four times, wasted money, frankly, you know, still, even when they got to their final final university they were so burnt out of the process like they weren't even really like committed to it anymore they didn't really even believe in what they were doing anymore so that was a big thing for us like looking at what is sort of the what are the quote-unquote solutions that exist right now and what is sort of missing so again like for us it was taking that tech-based approach to say like okay how can we create more access and more opportunity for people regardless of where they live um, regardless of their familial backgrounds and things like that to sort of make it, you know, accessible for everyone. And and that's why one of the reasons why we had decided to do, um, you know, build an app that we wanted to be free for people. Because, again, we didn't want to have, like, the restraint of, of people, of not everyone being able to use it. So, Yeah, I think accessibility is really the big word that's coming to mind for me is kind of making the best information accessible to the most amount of people as possible. I think that's something that trickles into tech business kind of across industries. It's like at a baseline, there should be equality of information. You know, it's kind of what's done with that information following often is the challenge, but at least give everyone an equivalent baseline of like where to move from. Mm -hmm. And on the podcast, we talk a lot about the idea of better questions, better answers. Often, Mm -hmm. if we're only asking baseline questions, we can only get very preliminary answers in our lives. So I guess for a person entering college or students starting to think about their next academic steps, what do you see as big questions to ask? Uh, I think that does come down to a lot of personal preference and things, but things that you've noticed with either the clients and students you've worked with or even speaking to your own experience, what factors attributed to your college experience the most? Kind of those Mm -hmm. biggest questions. Yeah, that's a great question. So... I'm not working on Embure anymore, but it's funny because now I'm actually going through the process with my younger cousin and um, we just wrapped up her like college applications a few weeks ago. And it was so stressful for me because I was like, man, how did I do this six years ago? (laughs) Was it this hard? Like, and I'm, and I really have just been trying to, you know, give her as much game as possible of like stuff I didn't know, because again, like, When I was applying to college, there was no one in my family who could like sit down with me and tell me about their college experience and be like, oh, these are the things that are really important and these are the things you should focus on and not these other things so much. So I've really enjoyed being able to have those conversations with her because she's going to be the next one to go this, you know, this upcoming fall. And so the the questions I've sort of been asking her to sort of think about is like, you know, one, like broadly, like what type of college experience does she want to have while she's there? And then what does she hope going to college? Like, what does she hope that'll be able to afford her to do? Right. Because I think people assume that you go to college and like, that's it. 
a lot of people are realizing now that's not the case because, you know, people have graduated and are having trouble finding jobs and different things like that. But I've really just been trying to stress to her and, and have her start to ask the questions of, okay, yeah, I'm going to go to college, but then what? College won't deliver your answer for you on your plate of like what your career should be or what your passions are. You always have to sort of be in a mindset of like exploring and learning and figuring things out. And that's something that I did when I was at Drexel recognizing what I did like, recognizing what I didn't like, and then really experimenting across a lot of different industries and companies and locations to see, you know, what made sense for me. So I think that those are like a couple of big questions outside of the basics of like, what can you afford, right? Like a lot of people don't even ask that question until it's too late, until they get to the school and they're like, I cannot afford this education. Like I have to go. But, you know, even being realistic about that and seeing, like, what types of other scholarships are they planning to get if they are going to apply to a school that's more expensive so that they don't, you know, dig themselves into a hole. And then when they graduate, they're really upset about it. So that that's another big thing, I think, to, to think about. I'm really glad you brought that point up because I think at the age of 18, we almost can't conceptualize how much $50,000 is or, like, what amount of work that $50,000 yeah. <laughs> takes to pay off. You know, it just seems so far and away. If like colleges just have a ticket price of $50,000, you're just like, oh, that's what it is. But really only until I was 25, 24, did I realize what that amount of money actually costs and what that actually takes to pay off, which I think is a conversation that needs to be explained more, more realistically to high school students. And then the other idea that came up for me was the idea of like, college isn't a destination, but rather a process. I think there's so much pressure on high school kids to get into the best college. Like I remember when I was in high school, it was what college are you going to? Or where did you get accepted? Like that was just the thing for basically all of junior and senior year. So because college is put on this giant pedestal, it becomes like the destination in some ways. And then you get there and then just kind of have to figure it all out there. So I think what you mentioned kind of beautifully illustrates that, you know, it's where you want to go to enjoy that experience. I know personally I was weighing between several different schools and going to Penn State ended up being a vastly different experience than GW, which was another one that I was experiencing. But really getting clear on those ideas of, you know, both the pros, both the cons, and then just like personal preference between the two, I think is really massive as well. Yeah. I was going to ask a quick question too, like that you started to kind of speak on. Did you guys, one, I guess like feel prepared going through the process of like, if you can remember, like feel prepared and do you remember what you felt like? And then are you happy that you went? Do you feel like it was worth it? Just curious. Sure. Uh, I'll speak first. I definitely felt prepared, but almost like overly so, more so stressed. Like I took, I think three AP classes in my junior year and then five APs in my senior year. So it was just like very college was the next step kind of thing. I mean, my decision process really came down to the financial element of it. Going in, my dream school was Boston College, but I got my acceptance letter and it said $63,000 a semester. <laughs> now, I didn't know a lot about money, but I knew that wasn't something I wanted to do. So I ended up going to Penn State for pretty financial reasons. Like they had the in-state tuition paying a fifth of the tuition compared to Boston College. Um, was obviously a pretty big draw for a business school that was more or less of equal caliber, I suppose. I mean, they always fluctuate, but I felt an education can't be six times better financially from one place or another. But I think the, to what you illustrated, like the 
perspective of it or like the experience itself was something that vastly changed. So I definitely loved my Penn State experience, like had the best time, but I do always wonder if I went to a place that like cared a bit more about academics, not to say my last couple of years of my master's degree, I didn't learn a lot, but like the first two years, I definitely didn't do much academically. It was mostly just like the party and football scene, which to each their own, I enjoyed it at the time, but I am always left curious if, you know, I studied and applied myself for those freshman and sophomore years, what that would look like academically at least. So definitely wouldn't change anything because I think all is as it should be is the saying I always come back to. I learned things and that ultimately shaped who I am now. But I sometimes am curious about like, what if I subbed in that massive time of just partying to studying something that I'm passionate about? Yeah, I uh, I mean, you've seen Matrix, right? You've seen the red pill, blue pill scenario. The question I often ask myself is if I had the the option to be offered a blue pill and a red pill, I forgot which one's which. Is blue pill the one that wipes your memory clean? Whichever one gives you that reset travel back in time option, I don't think I would ever opt into that decision. I think all three of us will probably agree because like what Aiden just alluded to, everything is just the way it's meant to be, right? I got to this exact timeline to have this opportunity to interview you on this Sunday because I did everything the way it's meant to be that allowed me to cross path with Monte, allowed me to cross path with you now. So I wouldn't change anything, but I have a pretty different story than you and him because I'm an Asian American. I'm sure you've heard of the phrase tiger mom. So I grew up in a tiger mom household under her strict authoritarian regime. So I didn't really get to say when or how or what it's, she says when, and I just do it. So she laid out a very concrete. So I also grew up in a single parent household. I grew up without a, without a dad, uh, but I had the financial backing of my mom because you know that typical immigrant American dream story that my mom she busted her ass. Uh, she lost her like she lost my grandpa early on. She grew up also in a single mom household, and so she just had impeccable work ethics and she achieved everything she set to achieve and she obviously imposed that expectations onto me because I'm her son. So I, I got into quite a few schools. I was addicted to the game called WoW, World of Warcraft. My senior in high school, I also had a girlfriend back then. So my academic preparation wasn't going towards the right direction, needless to say. <laughs> my, my time was being occupied with my girlfriend and I was playing this very addicting game. So I actually skipped out. Uh, my mom actually prepared quite a few SAT tutor sessions for me. I lied to her. I skipped out on all the sessions. I just told the tutor, keep the money, but I'm not going to go to your sessions. And I only took one SAT, did decently well, not to my mom's expectations well, not even close. And I ended up choosing between NYU and Penn State. And as an international student at the time, since I wasn't a citizen then, I always wanted to obtain that American dream Hollywood holistic college experience. And Penn State is a Big Ten school. And NYU, as you know, it's in a concrete jungle, has zero sports, has zero American sports identity attached to that. So I went with Penn State. And yeah, I echo what Aiden said. I I was a double major. So my majors were decently rigorous. I thought it was a holistically amazing experience. And I went to grad school at Penn as well. Um, and I remember looking to my left and right and all these kids who went to Cornell, Columbia, other Ivy Leagues for undergrad who also ended up at Ivy League grad school. And here I was who went to a pretty good public school like Penn State, but it was not the same caliber as their resume. But here I am 
able to you know enjoy this rigorous experience collectively with everyone else was a, not just an affirmation but i think to go full circle and talk about what we all experience is that no education is worth six times the cost or no single experience is worth or going to prepare you for life and unfortunately before a college will get your foot in the door now it's, that's not even guaranteed you may get your half your foot into the door and 10 more things have to happen the right way for you to get that job. So I think the importance of college is definitely shifting away or chipping away little by little. But I think to our generation, I'm still able to reap like everything I'm able to do now. I'm still reaping the benefits of that college degree, which ultimately gave me that access. And I think access is ultimately what privilege is. In my mm -hmm. definition, I think the amount of privilege or the lack of it's predicated on how much access do you have? Because I like well, for Monte's episode, he said that when he was in Penn for his MSW program, he looked to the left and right. He felt like the experience was just going by him and he wasn't able to enjoy the experience because no one ever told him that a kid like him from his background is able to share that classroom experience with other students like whose white counterparts, Asian counterparts, whatever, from a lot more privileged backgrounds. Maybe for you also that most kids in like your background and from your community, they are never told what's possible for them, right? I'm sure your counselor didn't even tell you about Penn or some of the Ivy League schools or for Monte. Nobody told him that was possible. So they, they didn't even tell him about such school exists. So he thought, oh, Temple is all I got or Temple is my best shot, which isn't the case. So sorry for the soapbox, but I personally love the experience very much. But I think the ROI has shifted tremendously since eight years ago when we went to college versus your cousin who is ready to enter the college next year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually had a, this reminds me, I had a conversation with a friend. I think what's hard to justify is the cost, but I wouldn't say that it's not important. I think ultimately, like, you have to understand, like, why you're going, and you also have to understand that, like, by going to college, it's not the end-all, be-all. It's not the, like, oh, you're guaranteed to be good now. I became who I am now, and, like, I got the opportunities that I got not just because I went to Drexel, but because once I got to Drexel, I, you know, met and networked and was really curious and did all the things that I wanted to do and like aspired to do and like needed to do. It wasn't like just because I went to Drexel. And one thing that we were talking about was that, you know, we still do think that education, especially college is still important, but you know, more so for people who do identify as minorities, like Latinos and Blacks, because there is still a bit of like a stigma around, you know, who needs the education, I guess you could say. Um, like this is kind of like a aside, but like, for example, when I started at LinkedIn, we had our longtime CEO, Jeff Wiener, who was running the company for many years as um, CEO. And while I was there, we also he ended up um, like leaving and going to pursue like other ventures and invest and things like that. He was still on the board, but he wasn't the CEO anymore. And the person who replaced him, who became the new CEO, a really smart guy, worked in Silicon Valley and tech for many years and was very qualified, but he never, I think he went to college, but he never graduated, which is extremely, well, one rare in general to run, you know, one of the most successful like tech companies in the world. And to never have gone, you know, especially in Silicon Valley, it's very much so like, you know, where did you go to school? Like there is an important sort of like factor to that. But we had talks about kind of how 
even the fact that he was a white guy, like, even the fact that he could still become CEO, mm. one, it was a credit to him, mm. but two, that's really not a reality for people of color. Like, mm. even thinking, like, a black man becoming CEO of LinkedIn, never having graduated, he would have never even gotten, you know, a job at LinkedIn without a college degree. And so I think that's, like, it's the hard part because... You don't want to say that you have to go to be successful or to get into some certain rooms, but to an extent you do based on, you know, how society views you. So it's, it's very hard because I don't, I'm, I'm very careful about, you know, even when I talk to people in my family, like I'm not going to be ignorant enough to say like, oh, like going to college did not drastically improve my life. It has done a lot of things for me that had I not gone to college, I wouldn't have been able to do so. It's very interesting to, to consider. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'd like to explore a little bit is actually working in college because that was something that I did as well. I had an internship. My, I was in a five-year master's program. So the fourth of my fourth year, the spring semester, I was on internship the whole year, which that was also the semester that all my friends were like doing the whole senior year thing. So at the time, I like was kind of butthurt about it. I was like, you know, they're all having a good time together, like enjoying their senior year. And I'm like, working busy season tax hours at a public accounting firm, which at the time was tough, but only now do I really value uh, the benefit of it all, kind of getting to see what work life was while I was still a student. And I have heard that's kind of Drexel's big pitch, I suppose, is you work several different internships while going through the college experience. What did that look like to you? Like working in college, how did that shape your academic and educational experience? Yeah, I think the, the biggest, you know, benefit to going to Drexel was, again, like my ability to like try a lot of different things out and to work at a lot of different companies so that by the time I graduated, I, I had, you know, clarity around what I wanted to do next. Um, so I think that's sort of what you pay for, essentially, is like you pay for that clarity, you pay for the fact that you know, again, like nothing's a guarantee, like they're not going to guarantee to get you a co-op. You still have to do the work. You still have to, you know, have good grades and and interview well and um, build your resume. But it's just the fact that it is such a, um, you know, cornerstone focus for the university. Like majority of the students who go to Drexel go there for a co-op. So um, you already know when you're going to the university like that you are going to get this experience. And it's, it's more so just your responsibility to make sure that you're getting the experience that you want. Like, they're not going to say, oh, well, here's this opportunity that you've been wanting and dreaming for your whole life. Like, you still have to go find it and go figure it out. And we have our co-op system, which has a lot of, you know, companies already in it. But you are, you know, empowered or I should say, like, it's up to you to empower yourself to go outside of the system and go to look at other companies like we don't have like Google in the system, for example. So we've just now started to get people who have started to go there for um, internships and things like that. But that, again, that's a step you, you have to take that initiative yourself and then you can go and, you know, and, and apply and make that summer that you have your undergraduate co-op experience at. But there isn't like a guarantee. But yeah, so I guess that's what I'll say about that. It was super helpful for me, though, for sure. I think you're speaking to the idea of expectations, right? Because I think the biggest issue that I have personally against college and a lot of the thinkers in the communities that are gradually speaking against uh, college among those few, Peter Thiel is a very well-known figure who is very anti-college. 
you know, even Seth Godin, a marketing guru, he's all about his, he has an alt MBA program and they're all about creating alternative education platform because the current system that's been employed is so broken. And what you're speaking to, I want to highlight it for everyone is the discrepancies between front end expectations and back end experience. So what I mean by that is a college costs a lot. Like for Drexel, I think Drexel is one of the most expensive schools. I know most kids go there, they have to go through the scholarships, but I know they're extremely expensive. But let's say Drexel is like 65,000 a year for a scholarship and you go into a school with a certain expectations. And like you talked about, because it's a contract. So if I agree to pay 65K per year through your institution, then there's a certain level of expectations that I'm given that if I work hard, I will be given a co-op. And if I have good feedback from my co-op, then that will eventually lead me to a first secure full-time employment. But I think the expectations of college has been on the decline versus what they can actually produce or promise. Because like you talked about before, a college will get your foot in the door. Now a college will maybe get half of your foot in the door. And then you have to do more networking. You have to reach out, do a lot of cold calling. You reach out to people on LinkedIn, whatever other skill sets you pick up from the holistic experience. But I think the college degree itself, yes, it's holistic, but it's not living up to the expectations that you used to. And I think that's what people's problem is, especially after the most recent Ivy League scandal from Brown, that we found out that coaches and a lot of parents were paying money through the back-end channels who guaranteed access through these extremely privileged white kids who ended up going in uh, numerous Ivy League schools. That scandal showed the world, but especially to Americans, that, wait a minute, the quality of education hasn't quadrupled or hasn't increased by tenfold within the past four decades. So why is the admission price ticket been on the rise? I think the stats said that the tuition has increased by, I think, like 180% within the past 15 years. But the quality of education or the promises or the expectations of that education as a bundle didn't increase by 180%, which shows that there's a lot of inherently broken issues that are just much more than, oh, like, am I paying for the prestige or am I paying for the pragmatism? Like, is the prestige of the degree practical enough to you know, convince myself of 150000 or 100000 whatever investment you pay. Because I remember that was the biggest argument. Uh, one of my uh, college degree was economics. I remember a professor always told us that if you have an option to invest in yourself as a future education, whether it's a master's or undergrad, he told us always do it. Because he's a professor at Penn State with a PhD, and his education has rewarded him with enough ROIs that for him it was worth it. But I think we have to be careful and be honest that everyone has such a different experiences and the same amount of investments not going to yield the same amount of return. And but yeah. fortunately, it sounds like all three of us were able to have a surplus of positive experiences. Yeah, definitely. And I definitely leaned into there. You know, there's also been a conversation just around sort of like, you know, what are you going to school to study for? Um, I think that's something to lean into because obviously like Mm -hmm. some people don't have the choice. Like obviously if you're going into medicine or law or, you know, these other things where you need the credential, you can't become a lawyer without going to law school, for example, and you can't get into law school without getting an undergrad degree, at Mm -hmm. least as it stands now. So I think there are certain careers that people will continue to pay for regardless of the price because they have to, because that's the only way that they can work in those industries outside of that you know I do think there is a you know a conversation to be had but like I said there are some people who can afford 
not to go and still be given access to opportunities, whereas some communities do not. Like, Black and Latino people wouldn't be considered, you know, qualified necessarily without a degree. So it's it's hard because, again, you don't want to... It's not necessarily about going just to like have the education but it's more so like okay once I get this like I've had a I've had friends who have said like okay I I have the piece of paper like now I can finally sort of quote unquote do what I want to do Hmm. and so I think that's sort of like the the price that you have to pay but there I think there is going to be an increasingly a lot of pressure put on universities to figure out that it can't keep going up forever (laughs) like it's just not going to work yeah definitely and I would kind of like to explore a little bit like the future of education. Uh, it seems like you're pretty interwoven with tech and education. Just, I think, especially with 2020, we've all kind of seen a revolution in both business as well as education. I think how flexible everything can be really came to light uh, across across the world. So how do you think about education moving forward? I think we both you know, experienced college in a very like transformational time frame, uh, whereas, you know, it might not be done in 10 years similar to how it was done in our time. So how do you see the intersection between tech and education moving forward, whether that comes to flexibility or accessibility, uh, just big ideas there that you're obviously completely speculating on, but, uh, (laughs) you know, we can't tell the future, but you know, what comes to mind for you there? Yeah, I mean, I do think that, you know, kind of speaking to what, we were, what I was mentioning earlier, for example, with like the rise of um, sort of like boot camp based programs, I think those types of things will continue. Like, I don't see those going away, for example, because of the fact that people are are now realizing, hey, I can essentially learn the skills that I would learn in college, but in way less time for way less money boot camps themselves wouldn't even be possible without technology like if this was like the 60s like it just wouldn't happen like you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like in the way that now people can sign up for a boot camp regardless of where they live at now there are boot camps that you don't even have to pay upfront money for which is what people have an issue with about college now a lot of boot camps are doing revenue models that they only get paid once they secure you a job so it's a mutually sort of like promised and like beneficial relationship like okay I'm gonna apply to this boot camp for coding for example get accepted do it over the course of three months like you know a good amount of them are like three months they're not even like two year long programs they're like a three month coding intensive boot camp the boot camp is promising me that they're gonna give me a job and in return the first two years of my salary I give I'll give them a percentage of a cut and that's how they make money now Hmm. and people feel a little bit better about that versus I'm gonna go to college for four years finish potentially have no clue or still have no idea what I want to do and I spent a lot of money doing it and I spent a lot of time doing it so I think just like you know that system itself like that traditional college like system of how it's designed is what is going to have to be um changed and altered um for the next few groups because I think colleges feel the pressure they are seeing that you know rates of applicants are dropping across all of their programs, not just undergrad, but MBA programs too. So. Gotcha. I kind of wish that we experienced a department of education C's versus the Capitol Hill C's, because I think there's a lot more problems could be achieved through rioting through the department of education rather than the Capitol Hill. But yeah, jokes aside, I think that's a perfect segue and an opportunity for us to dive deeper into your personal experience since we've been talking about tech and education and you as the first 
generation uh, Puerto Rican, Latina slash African American, since you're mixed, that must have been an experience of itself. Being the first person from your household that not only went to college, but to graduate from college through full scholarship. And I think we should be able to learn a lot from your own journey, maybe the struggles from that and some of the mindsets that you took away from your experience of becoming the first a generation as college students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so much to say about that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for me, college, like you were talking about this earlier with, with your mom and, and kind of how she really pushed going to school and things like that. Um, and, and my mom did as well. And I think part of the reason was because she didn't go. She went, but she didn't graduate. So, you know, she was never able to, um, you know, a lot of the challenges I should say that she faced in working in corporate environments or, you know, things like that. Like mom's like an accountant, interestingly enough. So, you know, even though she has like almost like 20 years of experience, like she still gets passed over for a lot of opportunities because Mm. she never graduated. Mm. Um, She, it's really hard for her to, you know, tap into a certain amount of earning again, because she like never went to college and it like absolutely makes no sense because she's worked at companies where they've hired CFOs to come in consulting CFOs kind of, and those CFOs have gotten paid more money than her and have known less, like Mm -hmm. have asked my mom to help them do stuff. So I think, like, that was something I witnessed coming up, just, like, how unfair stuff was. And I'm Mm. like, this makes no sense. You mean to tell me you have, you know, over a decade, 15 years, 20 years of experience, and people won't, you know, give you the respect and opportunity to do the things that she was more than capable of doing, some of it because of gender, some of it because of she's Puerto Rican, and some of it because they didn't feel like she was qualified even though she was, and she proved time and time again that she was, but it didn't matter. So that was like something I I witnessed like years and years. So many times she's had really bad experiences at work. And so she kind of pushed on me like, you need to go to college and a little bit, you know, like when you go, you're going to be good. I said earlier, like when you go, you're not necessarily good, but that's kind of what she told me. So, so I did have that conception going in, like, okay, like once I go, like I will be good at like, because I'll figure it out. Um, but I didn't necessarily know how I would make sure that I had a successful college experience and then graduated and still be considered like competitive talent and work at these companies and stuff like that. So that was one thing. And then like my dad, for example, like my dad didn't even go to high school. So he didn't really push education or anything like that Um, because again I was raised by my mom but I was able to sort of like understand like fundamentally from a young age like okay if I am educated if I'm knowledgeable that's going to be better off for me than not Um, and I'm going to be given a lot more opportunities than not so yeah I guess that's what I'll say about that opening up yeah on being raised by your mom's front it sounds like she definitely taught you the hard work and kind of that patience of even if something's unfair working through it to the best of the ability are there any other big lessons that she's taught you whether that you know might not be as necessarily work or education related just big life lessons it seems like she's played a huge role in your life i guess a comment i'll use that word like big one was like you know you have to work harder than everyone else you know take pride in grinding i guess you can say and and i've always been someone who like you know whether i've gotten into certain rooms or experiences or opportunities that once I got there, even if it was really hard for me to to get to that point, 
I still wouldn't let anything, you know, sort of like really get to me um, because it was almost just like, all right, well, I have to work harder to get here. I had to work harder and I still have to continue to work harder to get, you know, maybe equally recognition or respect or things like that. So I think that was a big lesson. Like you just have to work harder. It kind of just is what it is. <laughs> my mom doesn't, my mom is very straightforward. She doesn't like sugarcoat anything. She was always really real with me about the realities of, you know, the inequality that is present um, in the world, being a minority and being a female, she was very honest. So I already knew when I was going to college, when I was going to work at internships, going to work at a full-time job, I already knew that there was going to be obstacles. So I wasn't like sheltered in that way. And then she also, I would say she just taught me like, interestingly enough that like your work and your job isn't like everything. I think, you know, for me, I was, I'm very, as we kind of talked, <laughs> talked about earlier, like I'm very focused on my career right now. But she has definitely sort of like bring up more as I've continued to get older, like your job and the work that you do, like isn't everything like there has to be other parts of your life. And this kind of got me is what started to kind of get me into focusing more on mindfulness and now doing this program at NYU and meditating and and really prioritizing like work life balance. That's become really important for me now. And to the point where I'm very open about it, like, you know, with different managers I've had teams I'm on I say openly and freak like you know often like yeah you know I really like to prioritize making sure that I go to the gym every morning and like that's really important for me to do that's how I stay sane and I'm somebody who works hard but also smart like I'm not the type of person who wants to be doing a job that I one I don't enjoy or that I feel like is like wasting my time or things like that like I'm always thinking about you know even I had this conversation with a friend I said you know the whole five days a week, 40 hour thing, that also needs to go. (laughs) I'm like, that's been around so long. Like I just, I really want to do some research. Like I feel like I can write a dissertation on the origin of that because who decided, someone did, in order for you guys to be productive contributors to society, you need to give us more than half of your life. It just blows my mind that we're still working that way. And there have been a lot of, um, well, there have been, you know, some companies that have started recently to push that question into sort of, I guess, the conversation, Um, like in particularly in Europe, like, you know, a lot of companies are known there, they take like entire summer breaks. Whereas like in America, the only way you get the summer off is like if you're a teacher, for example, (laughs) that's a benefit of being a teacher. But like internationally, you know, it's uh, very well known that they get the summer off regardless of your industry. And also they've been a little bit more, I would say, open to doing a four day work week or doing, you know, shortening hours or things like that. They've just been more flexible where I feel like the United States is trying to hold on to something that needs to be let go. Even with the whole working from home thing and with COVID, like there are so many companies that would have never gone remote until we had, we had to have a pandemic for them to be like, okay, now let's see if you guys can work from home and now at this point we've been doing it for almost a year and it's gone fine generally speaking from a work standpoint so Mm -hmm. there's a saying that one of our old guests introduced us to and it's necessity is the mother of innovation and i think that applies so thoroughly to the COVID experience in general and to the point that you illustrated is just we had to change and now that we're kind of standing not necessarily the other side yet but we're kind of getting through to the other side a little bit it's Definitely fascinating of how companies are adapting and kind of shifting what they do. And I completely agree with the, you know, reframing the nine to five.
because I think as long as the work gets done, there shouldn't be like a time commitment necessarily. So sometimes you just, I personally really like to work in blocks of like do one thing a lot. So I could work 12 hours on a corporate job one day and then take the whole next day off rather than showing up over and over again and kind of empowering the employees to have more flexibility and ultimately autonomy, I think is really powerful. And the seasonal approach that you mentioned, I want to riff on a minute because I read recently that Bill Gates would go to like a cabin or like somewhere super remote every summer for a period of time. And he would basically say that all of his best ideas would come when there's space. Like ultimately you can't have innovation or creative ideas if it's the same thing over and over again. And that's something I've been exploring a lot recently is like, say I have writer's block and like can't think of new ideas, just going somewhere new. Ultimately, it's getting out of our routine is ultimately the thing that leads to creativity, whereas being in a routine leads to productivity. So finding that balance of routine and space and creativity and productivity is something I've been thinking a lot about. Is there anything you know, you'd like to add there or that comes up for you? I definitely agree. And I think, um, I think it was funny you mentioned this earlier that you similarly, like, you know, when you're naturally like an entrepreneur, I should say, your mindset is always on like, okay, I have to be on all the time or I have to like grind all the time. And, but what, what ends up happening, and this happens at, you know, even when you work your full-time job too, when you always are on, you never have off time. I feel like that's what leads to so much burnout. And there's also been a really big conversation about burnout that, you know, now that even though we're remote, many people are working remote, that people actually feel more burnt out now because they're taking less breaks. I for sure take less breaks. I for sure don't really take a lunch break. Um, you know what I mean? Like different things like that. And I think that that's going to be continually a, a, an issue because people aren't able to operate like that forever. And I, and I do agree with you that being able to have that time to yourself just to be still and like not think about the next thing is where like a lot of the magic happens so i just want to take a quick second and shout out to all the single moms out there because you know single moms are i think the most incredible and tough creatures period i mean my mom she was like a she was a freak warrior who was ready to tackle the world by herself you know raising me and my sister and i'm sure your your mom who raised you and your brother also have the same story the same grits the same mental fortitude so I, I wanted to take a moment and pay homage to all the single moms out there. Thank you for listening to part one of our episode with Shania Smith. Part two will be dropping next Monday, where we discuss the power of now, her meditation practices, and real estate. We hope you have a happy Discover More week. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.